1: Hello and welcome to 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast with me, Rich Ferraro. Forest, at the time of recording, are still at the bottom of the Premier League, but on a high after a tactical reset and a new contract for Steve Cooper. In today's discussion podcast, we will be talking about a busy few weeks at the city ground. There have been plenty of highs and plenty of lows. We'll also have our regular sketch from Jeremy Davis, and we'll be discussing matters on and off the pitch, including, I'm afraid to say, some unsavoury chanting at the Liverpool game. And all of that comes in this episode of 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast that would never resort to low journalistic standards. Now, let's say hello to today's panel, and we'll ask them what they have learned in the last six weeks. So let's start with you, Tom Newton. Um, From one of the
2: parts what I did earlier um, in the season, us as far as were very much naive, and after that Leicester game, we've obviously reset... Change things tactically, and I think we're coming to terms with the pace of the Premier League and
1: the tactical side of it. Great, okay. I'm going to come to you, Adam. We've not heard from you a little while, so uh, what have you learned in the last six weeks?
3: Um, I think, I think to be honest, it's just that uh, Steve Cooper is not stubborn in the sense that he will decide. You know what? The three back isn't going to work, so. Let's go to a 4-3-3. Let's keep it nice and tight. Nice and, you know, a couple of games, to be fair. It's been a little bit boring, but it's just, let's keep it tight. You know, let's grind a couple of results out and let's get, get some points on the board.
1: Great. Stephen Topless, what can you add to that? This is a team that's playing for the manager.
0: They are showing a desire and a willingness to work hard to carry out the manager's tactics when in the last couple of weeks, it's not exactly been positive, but it's been necessary. And the game against Liverpool on Saturday was a real indicator of where that hard work and that belief has got us. And the players, the way they were celebrating at the final whistle just shows that they are fully invested in what's going on at Forest and fully behind
1: Steve Cooper. Great. And uh, last, but very much not least, Baz. Um, over the last few weeks, um, the
4: thing that struck me the most, actually, is I used to work. I don't, I don't know if this is like out of order. <laughs> it might be, but um, I used to work for a Greek lad, and he was absolutely. I, I absolutely loved working for him. He was brilliant, but he also used to have this impression that if everyone in his company wasn't running around like the sky will not falling in, then they weren't working hard enough. And that's kind of what I think happens with Mr. Maranakis at the moment is, um, yep, things weren't going very well. So everyone has to, like, go absolutely mental and do loads and loads of stuff, whether it helps or not. And that seems to be where we were for a few weeks this this um, uh, this this autumn.
1: Hmm. We'll we'll come back to some of those themes in a little while. Uh, we're on a bit of a high at the moment, and despite dropping to the bottom of the table again on Sunday, the weekend's victory over Liverpool provided a great occasion for the fans and players. Um, it's worth pointing out, however, that the head coach, Steve Cooper, was a little more cautious. Let's hear from him.
5: We needed a win, Colin, as you will know as well as anybody else. We been in a poor run of form, and um, you know the only way to stop that is to win a football match, and we've done that today. Um, but also, and again, you'll know a lot more about this than me, there's a lot of history and nostalgia to the game today. So I think we've pleased a lot of uh, generations of supporters today and uh, that means a lot to me. Um, so I'm so happy that they can turn the TVs off and walk away from the stadium, happy with, with their with the team and their club today and be proud of that. For me, it's a, a great win, an important win, but that's all it is, is a win. And um, we need to use today now as a
1: reference point to build and to improve our league position. Okay, so Steve Cooper really keen to to play things down there. Uh, Baz and I discussed in our match report last weekend that he didn't do his fist pumps. He just apl- applauded the fans from the centre circle and then headed down the tunnel. Uh, Tom, he said it's just a win and we haven't had enough of those. So how did you feel? Did you manage to keep your feet on the ground?
2: After the game, obviously the joy of actually beating Liverpool and what it meant and everything, but... Now I'm with Steve Cooper on it. It's like, we've got to win more football matches to stay in this league. And and the good thing about it, everybody says, oh, when's he going to do his fist pumps? And it's like, well, he's very much of the sense that it's not about me. It's about the collective. And um, yeah, he's very classy. Like he applauded the fans and everything because they got us, well, got the players over the line last Saturday. And we we'll go again on Sunday in the Capital.
1: Mm, and Adam, I mean, you know we we'd been waiting for a win and for it to come against liverpool was was obviously something that the fans and the players really enjoyed so um but but Cooper's right, isn't he?
3: yeah, of course, and I think you know it's it's a very forest thing to do in a way <laughs> to 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 win the game that no one thinks you'll win it, it, it's it's a theme of the last sort of 10, 15 years of Forrest is winning games that he probably shouldn't win. So, but no, look, we, 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 do have to keep our feet on the ground. It is just one win. It doesn't matter who you beat. You get the same amount of points. So there's no point thinking, well, thinking, oh, well, you know, we beat Liverpool. So that's it now. You know, we're going to, we're going to beat Arsenal on Sunday. We're going to be romping up the table. It, it's not going to go like that. And we know that there's a lot of football still to be played. And I think all of us as a collective need to keep our feet on the ground. But look, it was nice. You know, it was very nice to be at Liverpool. My best man, my wedding, is a massive Liverpool fan. Mm-hmm. That that was his first ever Liverpool game that he'd been to in person, and they got beat by Forest. So,
1: <laughs> yes, and, and 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 just as you're saying that, Steven's taking a, a a sip from his forest mug there. And Stephen, I'm gonna come to you because you alluded to it in your opening gambit. Um, what the victory showed was despite having looked very disjointed for pretty much all of the first 10 games of the season, that second half against Brighton and then the game against Liverpool, the team showed a real unity and spirit, but also cohesion that maybe was lacking before.
0: They did. And it was a nice reward for the way that Steve Cooper has set up the team because certainly against Wolves and Brighton, uh, we we were set up like that, but there, there wasn't the there wasn't the cohesion. The attack wasn't working. The midfield wasn't getting on the ball enough. Whereas against Brighton in the second half, that started to come together a little bit. Not so much the attacking, but certainly more of a team cohesion. And then against Liverpool, it just it all came together on the day. Defensively, we were strong. The midfield were excellent, I thought, to a man. I don't think you could, you could criticize any performance in the Forest team against Liverpool. And the key thing was attack wise, we were much, much improved and we created chances, could have scored more goals on the day, but overall looked more threatening going forward. And I think it was an ideal performance. It had a bit of everything that we
1: want to see from this Forest team. Mm. And and Baz, just briefly, um, in their opening gambits, Tom and Adam both referred to the kind of the change in in style and formation. And and you and I, in our match reports against Villa and Liverpool, we made the point that the midfield is making the difference, isn't it? That gap between midfield and defence, which was such an Achilles' heel, has been closed down. And the presence of Remo Freuler there has given Steve Cook and Scott McKenna a whole lot of protection. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, uh, I'm very, very happy about Freuler. Um It's it's a position that I like a lot. Is that that sitting there, and I also like the fact that it's not quite, um, it's not about how swashbuckling he is. It's just that he does all the simple things right. Um, I think that's that's made a big, big difference to to what we've um, achieved over the last few weeks.
1: Just, just a thought on that, Baz. Is Remo Freuler the new Ricky Shimaka?
4: um yes but he doesn't drop into the defense as much
1: Mm, fair enough fair enough um right I'm just going to deviate from on pitch matters just for a few minutes because there's something important that we do need to discuss and I think it'd be remiss of us not to do so so talking about the Liverpool match we should reflect upon as Steve Cooper did that part of the history of the fixture um you know, history is a big factor, and part of that history is the Hillsborough tragedy. Now, uh, there was a Twitter thread pre-match from the author of the Zigger Zagger blog. And I had a chat with him earlier this week because he'd anticipated there'd be some unsavory chanting. And 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 true enough, there were accusations flying around in the press on Sunday and at the beginning of the week, on the radio, in the papers and so on, that maybe there were chants that were unsympathetic, shall we say, to Liverpool fans. So just a warning that um, some of this conversation may be a little bit upsetting to listen to, especially if you were there on the day. Um, But yeah, I had a chat with him. Hi there, Ziggazaga. Thank you for joining us. There was a lot of talk after the game about supposed chance to the Liverpool fans about Hillsborough. Can you explain why this might be problematic?
5: My view is shaped by having been at Hillsborough and a witness uh, and subsequent contact with the Hillsborough Survivor Support Association, who are a group who support Forest fans like myself, who... Um, were traumatised to whatever degree at Hillsborough. I'm, I'm not certainly one of the most extreme cases of that it's, it's caused me my problems, it causes many of our supporters or a good number of our supporters much more traumatic problems um, and I still know people who haven't been since that day and would never dream of going to the match again but sort of turning, turning, to, turning to the your points about the, the the chance, though. So let's let's if, if we deal with the victims one first. Um, there are only two possible events victims could refer to uh, that involve Liverpool Football Club. One of those was was Heysel. The uh, tragedy involved 39 fatalities, where they were famously not the victims. So that's one possible event. The, the only other one, there's only other one, and that's Hillsborough, and, and Liverpool fans were the victims of that. The the inquest outcomes are are absolutely clear, and that fan behaviour has nothing to do with what happened there. Um, it's the longest inquest in British legal history um decided that it categorically wasn't related to fan behaviour. So they're right to point that out when they're accused of causing it them causing the disaster themselves. And that's not that's not a victim mentality. That is actually being a victim. What you've got to remember is some of those victims um are, are still in the ground now. So so that, you know I know people who were there who were Hillsborough victims, obviously survived Hillsborough, but victims in terms of mental health, having lost loved ones. Um, you've got to imagine being in that position and having those events pointed out to you every week is, is not a pleasant experience. You've paid you 30 quid to go and watch a match, sit down at Forest or wherever, or wherever else and, um, have, have traumatic events thrown at you in the, in the name of banter and football, football rivalry. So I, I would, I would, I would say, um, the, the, the victims thing just doesn't work at all. It's not nice. Um, and I think we can be, I think we can be better than that.
1: Okay, so you mentioned the next chant. The other chant is one that was very, very clearly aimed at offending the Liverpool fans, isn't it?
5: The other one is the... the, I can't even bring myself to say the name of the paper. Um, But go on, I'll force myself. The Sun was right. That that can only refer to Hillsborough. It can't refer refer to anything else. All the issues that Liverpool Football Club have had with the Sun have been around Hillsborough. The Sun passed no judgment on on Heysel. Only Hillsborough. Um... So that referring to the sun and the sun being right is is basically saying, your fans caused that crush, uh, your behaviour caused that crush. Uh, you killed one another. that's what that's what that's what that chant is saying because that's what the sun said at the time and and was forced to fully um retract um in in the in the forms of time following following campaigning. Um so then that line gets followed with your murderers. So what we've got is the sun was right. You're murderers. So that can only mean that you, you people sat there. You murdered your fellow fans at Hillsborough. That's all that chant can mean. That's all it can mean. Um, so, for example, uh, my mate Jimmy, who was in pen three, the major problem. You've got the major problems are in pen three and pen and pen four. Major problems is underplaying it. Bit, but you know what I mean. Uh, Jimmy was in pen three. I believe. Uh, He tried to hold the crowd off his best mate uh, for goodness knows how long, 10, 15 minutes, and they haven't got the strength to do so for long enough. Uh, He ran out of steam and watched face-to-face his friend being asphyxiated, and with his last breath, his friend called him a useless C-word. He now goes to a match uh, at which he's told he's a murderer. the, The psychological burden of that to somebody going to a football match... Um, just isn't it's not acceptable to inflict that on another human being as far as I'm concerned um that's you know you've got to remember there are still there are still suicides resulting from Hillsborough and the the aftermath. There have been three since um the events in 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 Paris. Let's go back to Jimmy on Jimmy's bus, there were thirteen of them on a minibus that Jimmy was on. um The seventh suicide amongst those thirteen has happened in the last two months. Uh, and that's what that's what that's what Jimmy lives with. That's what that's what Jimmy is living with when people are chanting that the son was right, that he was a murderer and he was responsible for the death of his of his of his own mate.
1: And just finally, Zigger zagger. As we often comment, social media can be a nasty place, and some people have accused you of of siding with the Liverpool fans or being a scouser in disguise. How would you respond to that?
5: Um, you know, I'm I'm not painting liverpool fans as any better or any worse than, any, than anybody else but i just think um, death mocking makes us look bad
1: okay so thank you to zigger zagger for sharing uh, your thoughts as somebody who's liaised with the hillsborough survivors uh, you can find his writing if you search for zigger zagger blog and he's on twitter at zigger zagger 67 but i think quite a lot of forest fans and liverpool fans have already found him in the last few days um just briefly coming to the panel. Um, I mean, please just just uh put your hands up if you've got anything to add there. Did you hear anything unsavory? Did you hear the chant about the sun? Tom, Tom, you're wanting to talk there.
2: Yeah, I was sitting up at Ridgeford, and part from like a couple of pockets about the victims. I never heard anything about the sun or Hillsborough. And on um the corner there, there was um a sign of solidarity with the Forest fans and Liverpool fans with a flag there. Um, regarding the 97 Liverpool fans who um, well, 96 died on the day then obviously um, the 97 obviously later on. Um, so I didn't hear anything but whether there was chance outside as the Liverpool fans were leaving possibly I don't know because I wasn't there but yeah it's just it's just always a minority isn't it what just puts it like a black mark next to the football club they represent. Um, so I think... I think people are just, it's always, like I said, there's always that minority and it just, it's, it's not nice because my parents went there in April 89 and they saw what was happening and everything. And there's people of that generation, possibly a bit young, who don't want to be reminded of that day. And I just don't see why we have to, keep, uh, like, there's a minority who have to keep mentioning to it because it's, like, unsavoury. I mean, have your banter and your chance, but let's not bring the dead into it
1: hmm adam as as the youngest person on the pod um somebody who was not even alive then and you weren't born for for a good 10 years afterwards one of the things i talked about off mike with zigzagger was you know is there a generational thing at play um as our representative of the youth do you think that there are some people who just are insensitive to it because they weren't there
3: yeah, potentially. I know, you know, for, for me, um, you're obviously right. It was a lot before my time. I mean, my dad was at that game um, mm. in the forest end. Um, he hasn't been to Hillsborough since. He he won't go. He says, regardless of it being obviously a very different ground now than it was then, he says he he wouldn't go. He, he couldn't face walking into that ground again. And I think that that is telling that somebody you know all, all these years later decides that that's still not it's where, where he'd want to go. And look, for me, it's, you know, like Tom, and I think like a lot of Forest fans were, tr- were sort of trying to plead innocence on Twitter, is that I we didn't hear, I, I honestly didn't hear any other chanting, other than the victim chant I did hear. A lot of people w- were suggesting on Twitter that it was more aimed at Liverpool's, um, more the attitude of kind of they always feel that the decisions don't go their way, or the FA's against them, or the Premier League's against them, or that's more the victim chance from what people said to me that or what people put on Twitter, that was more the understanding rather than Hillsborough, high or anything like that. So I think that that's maybe the way it was intended, but I can see a hundred percent from the Liverpool perspective, why it would be taken the other way. Um and you don't want to leave reasonable doubt there and stuff. Ultimately, we should you can't mock a disaster it, it it regardless of how you feel about liverpool football club whether you like them dislike them whatever it might be that's not football at that point you know and i i did see a lot of people my age on on twitter or you know a few people in the ground and outside the ground you know with some comments that i wouldn't repeat on here that i felt were really unnecessary um And I think there's definitely a level of, especially the people that were there at the game, especially people that watched the game on TV or whatever it might have been, that I will, and no one my age or in my age bracket, will ever know how that felt being there on that day. So you can't, you just really can't even put into words how you'd feel if you were there. So it is upsetting. And it is upsetting that maybe there were some people that let the club down that day on what was a very, very special day for our club.
1: Mm. and 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 Baz, just just briefly, you and i were were kids in the nineteen eighties. You're a little bit older than me, but um I mean let's not dispute the fact that Liverpool as a city has as well you know regardless of the football club, Liverpool as a city had suffered a lot in that time as well so um to a certain extent, people from Liverpool, for example, they were politically those those the Thatcher government tried to manage Liverpool City out of existence that was a fact that's something that's been documented so equating football and politics people say oh to keep the politics out of football and yet this seems these kinds of chants seem to at the very least even if you adopt that defense of it's because liverpool liverpool fans always seem defensive well that defense doesn't wash because then you're all, those are the same people who say let's keep politics and football separate
4: i think um Yeah, I'm the oldest one here, and I have very little time for Liverpool Football Club, but those people died because the country hated football fans. Mm -hmm. That's what it came down to. So people like us, we were at risk in the 80s because the country hated people like us, and that's why they died, and that's not on. And I I personally, i I say, I didn't hear the song chant. I don't read the sun. I don't go anywhere near the sun because of what they did in the eighties. Because I'm older than everyone else here, um, and yeah, that's that's what it comes down to. If you're condoning if you're condoning those chants, then you're saying it's all right for the police to let people like us die, mm-hmm. and that's not on.
1: Mm. And Stephen, um, just coming to you last of all. Um, last night, you and I were having a chat about this, and we were just saying that. All it does really is it drags Nottingham Forest's name through the mud because when you've got a satirical cartoonist like David Squires, who, without mentioning the club's name, pointedly makes reference in this week's cartoon to the fact that it's just by good fortune it was not Forest fans who died that day. That makes a point, doesn't it? It
0: does. And I think as a football club, we have an opportunity to set an example and remind ourselves that a lot of our fans were there on that day and okay we weren't in that end of the ground but the fans the the forest fans saw some horrendous things play out in front of them and as Zagger alludes to those things stay with you and i would hope that as a fan base now we can use this as an opportunity to stop the chance related to hillsborough victims or and how they can be taken in that way and and we we set that example and, and say no it, it's not on and we're not going to take part
1: in it. Thank you very much Stephen um, so once again thank you to Zagger and thank you to the panel um, let's get back to the football because obviously the reason Forest fans have got quite a good reputation at the moment is because we've been really good in supporting our team over the last few years um, but going back to the football let's just talk about the uh, the Premier League table. I've mentioned um, earlier that Forest are at the bottom at the moment, but um, they're on nine points and Wolves and Leeds have got the same amount of points and Wolves' goal difference is minus 13 and Forrest is minus 15. Um, be interesting to see what happens managerially, as Baz and I alluded to uh, in our last match report. Um, above the relegation line, it's pretty tight, so Leicester on 11, but then it's really tight because... Everton are in 12th position on 13 points. So really, there's a lot to play for. And as Adam and Baz have commented in recent weeks, if Forrest can get to the World Cup break without being cut adrift, then really it is all to play for. Anyway, um, we're going to continue the discussion. We're going to talk about Steve Cooper. We are going to talk about what's going on behind the scenes at the club. And we will have a triumphant return of Guess That Red. But in just a second, we're going to come back and hear from Jeremy Davis.
6: You're listening to 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast. The 1865 sketch by Jeremy Davis. When I was 13, I used to play a computer game called Tracksuit Manager in which the player was put in charge of the England national team and tasked with qualifying for the World Cup. Compared with other football management games, it was very limited. There was no training, no match graphics, and you didn't actually get to play the tournament if you got there. The most enjoyable aspect of it was picking your squad from the long list of names provided. I'm guessing that the game was released around 1988, as said list featured Gascoigne at Newcastle, Hoddle at Monaco and Lineker at Barcelona. Steve Sutton featured, but sadly it was a bit too early for Mark Crossley, or I'd have capped him before Wales nipped in, to secure his services for Euro 96. Surely the only man ever to have saved a penalty for Matt Letitia would have had no trouble with Andreas Muller. The most remarkable thing about the game, though, was its in-match sequences. A scrolling, text-based report, similar to watching the live text feature on the BBC website. You had to try to visualise the action in your head whilst watching the feed. As in, crossed by John Barnes, header by Gary Lineker, goal. With no detail about how Barnes might have got the ball, beaten a couple of players before crossing. If track suit manager had included Euro 96, Gazza's famous goal against Scotland would probably have read, David Seaman kicks a long ball, Darren Anderton passes to Paul Gascoigne, Gascoigne volleys the ball, goal. With no mention of the flick over Colin Hendry, or indeed the dentist chair celebration. Anyway, I was reminded of this game on Saturday while following the closing stages of the Liverpool match on BBC Live Text. I hadn't been able to access live BBC Radio Nottingham coverage, and Five Live was covering the cricket. Now, you expect the Live Text to cover all of the important action, but let me just read you how the BBC website Live Text covered the five minutes of stoppage time. 90. Attempt missed. Virgil van Dyke, Liverpool... Left-footed shot from the left side of the six-yard box misses to the right. 90 plus two. Corner, Liverpool. Conceded by Joe Worrell. 90 plus two. Attempt saved. Virgil van Dyke, Liverpool. Header from the centre of the box is saved in the centre of the goal. So, Dean Henderson's one-handed save from Virgil van Dyke's header, which had the entire BBC punditry team, except Danny Murphy, going gaga was described thus, Heather from the centre of the box is saved in the centre of the goal. That's a bit like saying that Carlos Alberto's goal in the 1970 World Cup final was a nice bit of passing. 90 plus 2, Ryan Yates, Nottingham Forest, wins a free kick in the defensive half. A full three minutes later, the next update describes Mo Salah's header being saved by Hendo, leaving the viewer none the wiser as to how the ball had gone from a forest-free kick to one of the world's best goal scorers having a chance. Now, I'm no stranger to missing important action. I was in a restricted view seat at the Old Wembley, and thus behind a pillar when Ketil Rekdal scored for Norway at Wembley in 1992, to pretty much do for Graham Taylor's England tenure, and was ordering drinks at the bar when, during England's match with Columbia at Wembley in '95, Jamie Redknapp swung in an unremarkable cross from the right, and I was looking the other way when Higita pulled off his famous scorpion kick. But just imagine what those three minutes were like between updates. Admittedly, as cliffhangers go, Ryan Yates wins a free kick in the defensive half isn't quite worthy of a Hollywood blockbuster in terms of dramatic tension, but I'm sure you all know what goes through your head at times like that. What had become of the free kick? Had it gone upfield? Did it go into Rosette? Had Forrest given the ball away and set up a Liverpool attack? Finally, at 90 minutes plus five, we found out. 90 plus 5. Attempt saved. Mohamed Salah, Liverpool, header from the centre of the box, is saved in the top centre of the goal. 90 plus 5. Corner, Liverpool. Conceded by Dean Henderson. 90 plus 6. Offside, Nottingham Forest. Morgan Gibbs-White tries a through ball, but Brennan Johnson is caught offside. Second half ends. Nottingham Forest 1, Liverpool nil. So, at 90 plus six, you've got Morgan Gibbs-White tries a through ball, but Brennan Johnson is caught offside, neglecting to mention that Forrest had broken thrillingly from the corner and that Jono had lobbed the ball from 40 yards and hit the post before being flagged offside. Factually, it's correct, but it completely fails to do justice to the drama of the moment. If that's as exciting as it gets on BBC Sport, it's little wonder that Five Live decided to cover something a bit more breathlessly fast-paced and absorbing like cricket
1: welcome back to 1865 the nottingham forest podcast and thank you to jeremy um baz back in the early days of 1865 when you were live tweeting from matches that's one of the reasons how we built up our following wasn't it because people were fed up with the text um, saying you know attacking throw-in by Paul Anderson or defensive movement by, <laughs> which, you know <laughs> Kelvin Wilson or whatever isn't it? So I'm just wondering if Jeremy Jeremy is still aware now of the fact that that Ryan Yates free kick was because he was fouled in his own box by the opposing goalkeeper. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah,
4: Lewis McGugan is lazy. That was that's, <laughs> I, I distinctly remember <laughs> typing that out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, probably missing that uh, free kick from against sipswitch at the time but mm. I think that's that's kind of the thing is for all the people who love data analysis and stuff like that those text updates they are the data analysis it is that's exactly what happened in the game they are the truth of it but they're not the point
1: of it <laughs> Lewis yes. McGugan is lazy that's the point of it Mm. I think the one that I remember is um, at the end of last last day of the season. I can't remember who's against, but you saying Chris Cohen is in flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right. Um, but just before we get cracking again, I'm going to go round to our panel and I'm giving each of you one minute and you can see it on the screen. And there's going to be a little timer at the end. Um, tell us about what your highlight has been of the last month. So I'm going to come to you, Tom. You got one minute. Go. It's got to be the Liverpool game because we haven't had a win for the last couple of months since the West Ham
2: um, result and it's been a bit bitty in the last month but we're slowly getting to grips with the Premier League and everything and uh, yeah, Saturday was a, an absolute brilliant day and to see Fives beat Liverpool it was brilliant for the whole weekend and going into the this week
1: with uh, Arsenal on Sunday. And you did that in less than thirty seconds, so it's it's very rare, Tom that you're quicker than I ask you to be so <laughs> um, and in that spirit, I'm going to go to someone else who <laughs> uh let's go to Stephen
0: for me, Ryan yates being the all action hero against Liverpool, his performance was magnificent, and he picked up where he left off against brighton he was he was great there, and Liverpool he just stepped it up another notch. And displayed why he's such an important player. He's adapting to Premier League football. He's raising his game. He's doing whatever it takes to win matches. And long may it continue. So my highlight is our Ryan
1: against Liverpool. Okie doke. Not when he got booted in the face against Brighton.
0: No, but I will say that he just carried on playing, didn't he? Didn't let that bother him. And yeah, full credit to him. Good old Yatesy.
1: Good stuff. Okay. Um, Adam, it's your turn.
3: Steve Cooper's new contract. Ooh. I honestly could just leave it there and just like They say that's <laughs> fine. But uh, no, because I think that everything that we've talked about and everything that we're going to talk about for the rest of the season will be underpinned by the fact that we have the best manager that we've had in the last 20 or 30 years has signed a new contract with the club. And I think that that is the most important bit of business we'll do all season.
1: Great, great, thank you very much. And then, last but very much not least, Baz. Well, Adam's just blown me out of the water.
4: But um, <laughs> so my favourite bit, and it comes back to the Liverpool game, is um, Jesse Lingard on the pit, on the on the touchline, um, because he's not my favourite player. He's not really Sean, but the fact that he was doing that for the last five minutes of the game means that it means so much to him and if it means that much to him then that means that steve cooper's doing his job right
1: yeah and worth just alluding to the fact that uh we've seen the triumphant return of bench and it's gone down very very well so uh okay so you've all done it in less than a minute which is much better than i was expecting i was hoping that you'd all get to hear the siren but um but sadly not so so um I'll I'll maybe insert that in in the post-edit or something like that. Uh, Okay. Now, we talked there, Adam, about Steve Cooper getting his new contract. Um, Now, I'm going to come to you because, yes, we're rightfully joyous about that. But in the same week, the Maradona Midlands and I were discussing the fact that there were other changes at the club. So, Filippo Giraldi appointed, but then also George Sirianos and Andy Scott were dispensed with. And these were... Dane Murphy and Steve Cooper's guys so what does all this mean for the club's football strategy
3: it was it was certainly strange and I think that the recruitment in the summer was almost it could almost be split into two different like schools of thought in the sense that there was a lot of players that we brought in that was like that's probably serious that's probably Dane Murphy uh, Andy Scott type of thinking which is players like Mangala Niakate, like you, you know you like your gems from the Bundesliga Um but then it felt like there was a couple of signings that were maybe kind of like shirt sellers, if you like. So like Jesse Lingard, Serge Aurier, like Kiarte, like Premier League names that I, I can't see were brought in by um, anyone but probably uh, Maranakis' uh, his family. I, I, I don't think, I, I couldn't see that, that with the recruitment model that we had in place that those sort of players be brought in by anyone other than them. So it's a strange one. I think that modern day football is really strange. And I'm sure that you guys, um, maybe you and Baz, especially might sort of reflect on this is that we know so much more now than we used to. (laughs) Like it's it's crazy how much we know about a football club. We know about the staff members of a football club. Like, do they publicize like the kit man's name, the tea ladies names now in the programs? Like it's, we know, we know probably too much in a way that when those people, when, when obviously those guys left, There was a lot of a reaction on Twitter, which was a massive kind of like, oh my God, this means that everything's exploding. Like all the good work we've done, all these brilliant players we've brought in, but that's not going to happen anymore. Dave Dave Murphy's going to leave. The club's this. It's just like, it was so overdramatic. And some of the business we've done is fine. Some of the business, there's a few players that I'm looking at now and going, didn't get it at the time, still don't understand it now. Not to. I'm not going to do any players out, but you probably have... A good idea of who I mean, Mm -hmm. but I I think there was definitely an overreaction on social media, which there normally is, and I'm I'm not concerned about it in the slightest. To be honest, we'll we'll bring in somebody else. We have brought in somebody else. January is going to be first indication of what the plan is going forward. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, Tom, what do you say?
2: Personnel changes all the time in a football club, doesn't it? You you see at other clubs like somebody leaving and like. Popping up somewhere else a few months down the line. So I know we get to see so much and hear so much now because of social media, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's, I mean, we're paying money and everything, but it's not up to us to a certain degree about how the football club is ran. Um, I can see why we borrow certain players, others, it's kind of, well, like Adam says, is it just for selling shirts? It's one of them. But then on the flip side of that, um, Spurs with, you think there is a really well-run club there. They've signed Jed Spence. Conte doesn't seem to want him and he's just sat on the bench. So it just works at at other clubs that sometimes think, oh, they're a really good well-run club and they do something a bit different, i.e. Spurs and Spence. Um, Etc. So, um, yeah, there's some questionable things what they've done over the last few months. But at the end of the day, if we stay in the Premier League, they're going to look at it and thinking, well, the players, what we've brought in, have kept us in the Premier League. So we just have to watch this
1: space. Uh, Stephen, there's... Um, Maradon, the Midlands and I discussed that actually, to a certain extent, as Adam was alluding to, there's loads of names that we know now and we don't actually know exactly what they do anyway, do we? So, yes, you can easily say that Sirianos might have had an influence on, let's say, Mangala and um Neekarte and Awani coming in, because that's his territory. But on the other hand, what's the difference between a sporting director, a technical director, a recruitment head, and all those kinds of things? Is there, is there an issue there, whether there's too many people who say that they know more than they do?
0: With the the different titles and things they do all kind of merge into one after a while you hear about certain tasks that one person's doing you think well hang on Sirianos was doing that or that's Dame Murphy's job isn't it so you you end up with that kind of confusion behind it Um, I agree I, I don't think I've ever known so much about what's going on behind the scenes at Forest and who does who's who and all that type of thing but I look at it in quite simple terms and say the fact that Dane Murphy and Steve Cooper are here still is a massive sign of confidence from the club that, they that they believe in what Murphy and Cooper are doing. They've recognized the work that they've done la- last season and to get us into the position we're in now. And if, if those two had gone, then I'd have been seriously worried that we were really sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and it was all going up in the air. So, I'm hoping those two there just keeps that stability and continuity going. And we are just freshening things up behind the scenes with a few different people coming in. People who with respect probably do have a bit more Premier League experience, which for a club in our position
1: is invaluable given how long we've been away. Mm. But yes, as you say, um, Steve Cooper and Dane Murphy, just like Remo Freuler says about the Swiss flag, it's a big plus. Um, Baz, to come to you, just a little thing that um, I discovered today. So, um, obviously, Steve Bruce has been sacked again, and um, and uh, at West Brom, apparently the transfer strategy was largely built over the summer on players that Bruce knows. So, there was O.K. yakuzlu who what, the people at West Brom knew, but then uh, Jed Wallace and players like that, he plays, players who he tried to sign. My favourite one, though, is... He signed Eric Peters on a free transfer because he's his next door neighbour in Cheshire. So our transfer strategy is surely better than that, isn't it? To be honest, I
4: mean, I think there there are some part of the thing of the. I mean, I've I've gone on about on about this before. Part of the thing of the moneyball strategy that Dane Murphy was supposedly in, in implementing at Barnsley that that um, that conglomerate were, were all about is that you look at the data and identify people that are undervalued. So it might be that, I don't know, maybe Kiate, his stats were amazing if you were looking for a particular type of midfielder. Or Serge Aurier, I, I would say actually Serge Aurier has had a massive impact, but his stats might have been the perfect defensive right back or whatever it might be so it might be that there was actually method to the madness and it's just part of the point of it is by looking at underneath the, the the obvious stuff that we didn't see it um it might be that but it might also be that um yeah our greek owner decided he wanted to make a splash and therefore had to make some changes
6: you yeah, know.
1: running around and doing stuff <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, let's let's use Kuyate as the example there because obviously then the, the accusation is that the manager's working with players who he hasn't necessarily chosen. So Kuyate, for his first few matches when we were playing a midfield two, he looked like a headless chicken. He looked like he had ability, but he was trying to cover all the ground and him and Yates in particular, when they played together, they are trying to do too much and couldn't do it. Kuyate and Yates playing down the channels as number eight with Freuler as a number six works really well. So again, that suggests that there was some method to the madness or am I being overly optimistic, Baz?
4: Um, well, I, I, that's that, that's kind of the point is we, we don't know. We don't know why those players were chosen, why those players, how long they'd been on the shortlist and whether they were part of the, the original plan or whether there was something that someone else added in later on. We don't know that stuff. Um, what we do know is that there's a published strategy from last season, which was signing players under 26 for the most part. We still signed Steve Cook and no one complained about that. And then there was a, a thing where certain members of the the club who may or may not be board members or whatever roles they had suddenly became really, really prominent for certain other signings that maybe didn't fit into that. But, as I say, no one complained about Steve Cook when he wasn't wasn't under twenty six.
1: So we don't know why they were signed in the first place. Mm, you've done very well to avoid any libel there, Baz. So congratulations. Um, and 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 Tom, uh, just coming to you in terms of uh, the the changes there. So alluded to kind of changing formation and changing tactics has kind of got the best made some of the players look better. So in that spell you know, you were very critical um, and you frankly sounded depressed after the Brighton match and um, in that spell where we dropped a Awanyi, we dropped Nico for a game, we dropped Lingard, um, Lodi was unavailable. But sometimes that's a sign that the system as well as the players can be the problem. You can't just throw 11 amazing players into a team and expect it all to work. Exactly. And another thing is it shows the kind of person steve cooper is because you get
2: managers who are like no this is my style like going back some years now but what mark warburton his plan b was to do plan a better and it's like no it doesn't work like that but well, with steve cooper he's realized look it's not working i'm going to put an extra man in midfield we're going to start from the back have a really firm solid base to work upon i mean it wasn't pretty against Brighton. Um, I mentioned that. I mean, goals are going to keep you in the league. Um, we never look like scoring in the month of Sundays, but then obviously in the Liverpool game, we've got everything brilliantly defensively. And even going forward, we really worried Liverpool at times with um, the chances from Johnson, um, Awani, um, Lingard had a chance and obviously the goal will come from Awani. So I can see why he's done it and that takes that's a massive positive and shows that um, Steve Cooper is not stubborn. He cares for the collective of the club because it's like, you get some managers, I'm not bothered. We're going to, basically, this is the way we're going to play. And they usually get sacked in like a month's time, but he's actually changed how we're playing. Okay. It's taken a couple of games for it to obviously slot into place, but, if we're going to play like that, how we did on against Liverpool and obviously second half against Brighton moving forward, well, that's going to keep us in this league compared to, what, a month, six weeks ago, where we were shipping goals to the fund. So, uh, yeah, take, that just shows the kind of person Steve Cooper is. He's is actually changed uh, tactics. We're a lot harder to beat now, and um, we're actually coming to terms with the um,
1: tactical side of the Premier League. Mm, Just picking up on that there, Adam, do you think the fact that Cooper was given the new contract almost gave him the permission to kind of go a bit more defensive? It's like, well, I've got the contract, I've got a bit of security, the club will look stupid if they sack me, so now I'm going to stop going gung-ho and I'm just going to shore things up and then use that as a building
6: block.
3: Yeah, I I think that I think most managers, let's be honest, if you, if you've got, I mean, every every managerial and probably every managerial contract in football is, you know, barely worth the paper it's written on. But I I think that when you sign such a long contract, I mean, that's the thing with Cooper's contract. It's not just a year extension. is it? It's a longer contract. It's definitely a plan. And, you know, we hear all this talk of like the vision of the club and all that sort of stuff nowadays in modern football. Um, But we got promoted a certain way, but, it was almost as if it was just everything fell into place at the right time with the way that we got promoted. We had Jed Spence. who was just, he, that was his, he made that position his own. Coleback was suddenly turned into the best left wing back in the championship. It was just, like it was, everything sort of fell into place. And when you got promoted, it was always going to be difficult to play like that anyway. Um, but it certainly didn't work. And I think it, it's definitely not a coincidence that he changed the system after the, Le- the Leicester game and said, right, doesn't matter how it happens, but we need to get some points on the board now. Because if we don't start getting points on the board, we're going to be cut adrift. And for me, um, you've you've very handily got the table in front of us on the screen, which is very helpful. Um, you look at that table; we are two wins of ninth. That 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 that's bizarrely how tight this league is. In the next three games, I think we'll get six points. So when the World Cup rolls around, I don't think we'll be in the bottom three, and that's because. Cooper said, you know what, we'll change it a little bit. And also, 4 through 3 just suits the personnel more than anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, players like Froiler, players like Mangala um, or Chiotta, because they've been sort of rotating in between. Um, having the front th- three of sort of Gibbs-White, Awany and Lingard, I really liked. Um, maybe Johnson for Lingard at some point. But... It just suits the personnel we have, and ultimately, pl- managers get more out of players by playing them to their strengths and playing in a system that works for the squad that you have, rather than playing the system that you just want to play. So, it showed a lot of maturity, and it showed a lot of nous from Steve Cooper.
2: Okay, briefly, Tom. Yeah, and the good thing is, apart from I think it was Johnson Williams, Froyla, mangali, if mangali gets in, and. I think Chiarte does play for Senegal. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to lose many players for the World Cup. So that gives Steve Cooper that six-week period to actually work even more on things because, unfortunately, I don't think Henderson's going to get in. I think the goalkeepers are going to be Pickford, Pope and Ramsdale. Yeah. So, um, and obviously, Scotland's on there with McKenna. So we're not going to lose many players. So um, and when we come back from the World Cup, I know we've got like two difficult games in Man U away on the 27th and Chelsea on New Year's Day but I think try and get a, I'll be happy with a draw, I'll be over the moon if I get a draw on Sunday the next two home games after that they're basically our Fulham and Bournemouth again so if you get hopefully six points, if we'll get four points I won't be too upset and that just gives a really good platform with the
1: World Cup, the six weeks Steve Cooper's got then we've Obviously, come back to it just after Christmas. Mm, Okay, I'm just going to quickly change a subject. Um, Stephen, I'm just going to come to you. And just in the space of a minute, um, what do you make of the FA's decision to charge Steve Cooper for improper conduct? So just as a reminder to everyone who's listening, Cooper said about the referee Tom Bramall in the Wolves game. We know the referee well from last season. We had him in the championship. We know the differences of what you can get with him. So we knew that was part of what we had to deal with today. And the FA in their charge are suggesting that he was accusing the referee of potential bias. So, yeah, just quickly. I mean, what was interesting in that one is that our friend Matt Langham, from a Wolves perspective, he also said the ref was rubbish. So it's ridiculous, isn't it?
0: it's hard to disagree with anything that Cooper said after the Wolves game, the referee was poor. And I think his officiating was having an effect on the match and the FA, I think, and I understand they don't want to throw their referees under the bus, but at the same time, just hold your hands up and be accountable. And I think you'll get a lot more understanding from fans, from managers and observers of the game. Um, I mean, look at the the referee on Saturday against Liverpool. He was giving... Every 50-50 was going Liverpool's way. We we were really struggling to get anything out of that ref, which made it even more sweeter that we managed to win the game in the end. And I think there's just... Again, I think there's got to be a bit more accountability from the FA side um, because that just makes for a better game as a whole and better officiating.
1: Well we're not going to say anything more because what difference does it make what we think the fa are going to do what they're going to do um so thank you for your contributions everyone uh what we're going to do before we wind things up is just remind you that we will be back with another discussion when the world cup break arrives we'll have match reports in the meantime but before we even think about any of those things let's welcome the return of an old friend 1865 yes that right. So it's time for guess that red. We're going to go over to our quiz master, Tom Newton, and he's going to give us five clues about a Reds player from the past. And we have to try and work out who it is by shouting out our name and giving a guess. So it's over to you, Quizmaster Tom.
2: Okay, so the first question is I was born in
1: 1967. Oh, Rich. Got. Steve Hodge, no. What
6: oh, bloody rubbish! Rubbish.
2: <laughs> so, um, second question is that I scored forty-one goals in a Forest career that spanned eleven years.
4: Buzz, come on! Is it Nigel
2: Clough? No, it isn't. You want Rich. Go on,
1: Scott Gemmell?
2: No. What so, um, Baz actually, um, Nigel Clough scored about one hundred and thirty-one goals. Uh, I, I was, I was just thinking of the age rather than the goals. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you probably get it on this third question. My goal effectively gave Man United the title in nineteen ninety-six. Stephen. Go on, Ian Wone, It is Ian Wone. Ian Wone Yeah. Ian so, um, the, other, um, the other, the last two questions was, I joined Barnsley after leaving Nottingham Forest in the year 2000. And the last question is, I've recently been assistant manager at a Premier league club.
1: Yeah, that, that would have definitely given it away, wouldn't it? So there you um, go.
2: So me and um, Stephen actually saw Ian Wone coming back from the ground on Saturday.
1: Oh, Yes.
4: So uh, yeah, was Daichi with him
1: as well, or was he too busy doing his new media career? I was saying I was seeing, I, was seeing a th- I
4: saw a thing about Daichi saying, um, "I can't go to Forest because everyone thinks I'm after the job." <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I live in Nottingham, which, um, yeah, you and me, we have a hi- bit of history with him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, um, so for the listeners benefit, the uh, the girl who lived over the road, who used to occasionally babysit for us, briefly went out with Sean Dyche when he was a trainee at Fox. And I
4: definitely remember her bringing her boyfriend round to babysit for us, so... <laughs> A ginger, a ginger hulking
1: boyfriend. with a, I don't remember that bit. You touch your bedtime now. <laughs> <laughs> There's nowhere we can go from there. So all that's <laughs> left for me to do is to say thank you very much to Quizmaster Tom, and say thank you to the rest of our panel, to Stephen, to Baz, and to Adam. We say thank you to Jeremy for the sketch. We say Callum, even though we've not heard from you tonight, we uh, are grateful to you for your continued news updates. But most of all thank you to you listener for joining us. As always if you like what you hear then we'd really appreciate us we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review for my coherent speech ability. And of course we will be back with a report after the game against Arsenal. Thanks for joining us. Catch you soon.
6: Sleep well, won't you? Sports Social Podcast Network.